This is Decoding Healthcare. I'm Kevin Ban, And I'm Jessica Sweeney-Platt. And today, we're going to be talking about the virtualization of healthcare. Kevin, here's a stat for you. Adoption of telemedicine services in recent years has gone from 54% in 2014 to 71% in 2017, with a 9% growth spike from 2016 to 2017 alone. Does that surprise you? Not at all. I'm, I'm telling you, this is something that physicians want to be doing. I can tell you, I do it in my personal life. I have friends, family, co-workers who ask all the time about things, and frequently it's a phone call. Oftentimes, uh, we might FaceTime. So I kind of tend to do it in my own life. I, and I don't know about you, but when I think of telehealth, I think of disruptors from kind of outside of the industry. So I'm thinking of Teladoc or American Well taking market share from these big hospital-based brick-and-mortar health systems. Today, though, we're going to look at one of the largest brick-and-mortar health systems in the country that is actively disrupting and virtualizing itself. Exactly. In this episode, we had the pleasure of speaking to Mark Harrison, president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare, the largest healthcare provider in the Intermountain West. Just just to give you an idea of the scale of this organization, this not-for-profit has over 22 hospitals, 180 clinics, a medical group with over 1,500 physicians, and Select Health, a suite of health insurance plans from one of Utah's largest health insurers. Before he took the helm at Intermountain in 2016, Mark served as Chief of International Business Development for Cleveland Clinic, developing and implementing their international strategy, and as CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, where he oversaw the establishment of 12 institutes, five centers of excellence, and more than 30 medical and surgical specialties. He's a pediatrician who got his MD at Dartmouth and also happens to be an all-American triathlete and seven-time Ironman, so he's clearly an underachiever in every sense of the word. No doubt about it. We spoke with Mark about Intermountain's virtual hospital program that is connecting the dots by rethinking care delivery models across the vast, largely rural region they serve. We also explored the leadership challenges Mark faced in disrupting himself and fostering a startup mindset in a 40-year-old incumbent nonprofit like Intermountain. Let's have a listen. Mark, I know that you recently launched Intermountain Connect Care Pro, and Jess and I are really fascinated by the concept of virtualization of care. So walk us through what Intermountain Connect Care Pro is and how it came around. Uh, We've done uh, distance services at Intermountain for a long time. So if you look at our day-to-day footprint, it's roughly the size of the UK or Italy, um, if you, you know, superimpose what we take, you know, where our hospitals and our clinics are on a map of, of Europe. And um, it's a fairly sparsely populated but large footprint. And we've got a number of facilities that are actually very remote, you know, up to 100 miles from the next um, hospital or town. And by necessity, uh, we had this very interesting endogenous movement towards providing distance health. And when I got here, I was really stunned by how sophisticated and complete the services were and very optimistic about our ability to help people outside our system. And a little bit of that had begun when I got here a couple years ago. Um, And also the results were spectacular. So for things like telecritical care, Every single ICU bed in in our system is monitored, regardless of the size and complexity of the facility, but also a number of uh, outside hospitals were covered, and for every single facility, 
Uh, risk of mortality was decreased, length of stay was decreased, cost per case was decreased, the need for transport was decreased. And a group of us sort of sat around and noodled on if we organize this into a virtual hospital, you know, what might we be able to offer to facilities and more importantly to patients? And we recognize that there's both a B2B and a B2C kind of component to this sort of care. Uh, that was the genesis of organizing things into Connect Care Pro. And it really, as most great projects, it started with how do you serve a patient better? And um, how do you make their care more accessible, affordable, and of higher quality? So, Mark, I'd love to dig into this idea of the virtual hospital a little bit because I'm fascinated by that term. One of the ways in which this effort has been covered, at least in the in the media that I've read, is that it is combining 35 different telehealth programs and that that is the virtual hospital. I'm, I'm suspecting that there is more to the concept of a virtual hospital than just the aggregation of lots of different telehealth programs. So can you talk a little bit about how how those two concepts are different or what you're doing with those 35 programs to make the whole greater than the sum of the parts? So we're doing a number of things to make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. So in some cases, we are um, co-locating, so we get some efficiencies that way. In other ways, we're actually offering complementary services. So in addition to tele-critical care, for instance, we might offer uh, teletrauma evaluation or tele-neonatal resuscitation or telehospitalist services so that the communication needs to be capable both inside the physical hospital but between services in the virtual hospital as well. And then you overlay that with our transport capability which really resides with the same group and our quarterbacking process that allows patients who might actually need to be uh, physically moved, patched in as well, you start to get a very complete, and I, I, you know, I'd hesitate to say seamless because nothing's ever perfect, but very well-coordinated uh, set of experiences. Do you ever get concerned as you're building out this model, which sounds um, like it really touches into the larger concept of population health management. Right. Are you concerned, though, that, hey, like we're a fee-for-service hospital in general, uh, but we believe there are efficiencies? And just bottom line, it's the right thing to do for patients and their families. Do you straddle that line between, hey, I've got to feed the fee-for-service animal, but I really want to push in the direction of population health, which would encourage this type of disruptive behavior? We believe that the two systems are somewhat complementary. This idea that um, you can either do population health or you can only do fee-for-service I think is complete baloney. Um, I think the uh, effective, efficient, necessary provision of vital services should be part and parcel of both fee-for-service health care as well as prepaid or population health type models. And one of the things I was so pleased to understand as I came to Intermountain is that our board has long recognized that we will forego short-term revenue in the interest of doing the right thing for patients and families and communities from a cost standpoint over the long run. So that was not a particular hurdle that we needed to cross here. Getting things done um, is always operationally difficult. But that was not a hurdle. And I will say that um, 
we've now crossed the 40% mark that more than 40% of our business is prepaid at this point. And we are in the wonderful position. And we've done this very intentionally. All of our growth is associated with population health and value. We've got a very rigid filter in place that if a growth opportunity does not support population health or value, we will not do it. So we're making the pivot and we're getting better and better every year. And we recognize that we can and we should, if we're gonna be responsible, never just feed the beast, ever. So you mentioned, and, and this is sort of building on the conversation that you and Kevin were just having, you mentioned that there was both a B2B, a business-to-business component, mm-hmm. as well as a B2C, a business-to-consumer right. component. Can you talk a little bit about the two of those and how sure. you see them complementing one another? So at this point in time, our B2C is much easier to understand, and it's the model of you can see a primary care physician, you can get some specialty care directly, you can have an urgent care visit via telehealth and uh, increasingly we're exploring other things like more asynchronous communication etc the b2b piece is helping other healthcare professionals other caregivers and institutions with a difficult problem they're having so you know really good example and this is actually something that plagues all sorts of institutions so imagine you're in a small setting and you've got a low volume delivery service and a mom comes in and it's too late to transfer her to a higher level of care and she's about to give birth to what looks like could be a very sick baby and you know at that point in time if you're in a very small setting the team generally looks at itself and tries to organize itself as quickly as possible for that uh, resuscitation and what happens in our facilities or facilities that we cover with teleneonatal resuscitation at that point is they get a neonatologist from one of our high volume referral centers who comes online, meets the family, understands the story, leads the team in preparatory just-in-time teaching about how the resuscitation should go, and then is present for the birth and monitors the resuscitation. And in the instance the child still needs to be transferred, that uh, neonatologist has already met the family, which is very interesting because when the baby's transferred, they're not being transferred to a stranger, they're being transferred to somebody who already knows them. So that's a B2B experience, but also includes some consumerism as well. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm, I'm curious to hear if you see an expanded B2B set of possibilities that would include. So I could imagine that the ease of access that some of these services provide would be really attractive to employers or would be really attractive to maybe state government. I'm, I'm, I'm no, you're, you're 100% right. Um, we've actually now exploring a, um, uh, kiosks in the workplace. We have installed a, a telehealth kiosk in a um, center that serves at-risk seniors in the southern part of uh, our valley so that they can actually have this sort of care available to them, um, sort of point of service, if they don't, for instance, have a cell phone or know how to connect to us via their phone. So that sort of B2C and B2B activities are, are, are growing really fast. And I think being well-received, it's funny, 
folks who have a reticence about experiencing one of these distant services, it generally goes away with the first clinical interaction. And people say, why would I ever want to go wait in a waiting room ever again? Particularly surrounded by sick people in flu season. Um, when I could do it from the comfort of my home. It makes, right, it makes with your a own box of Kleenex but, and in your pajamas or whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be. Well, I'll tell you, um, the Italians have a saying, I know my chickens. And I think to a certain extent, after 20 years in healthcare, I know my chickens. And physicians can be really reluctant to go to places like this. And, and a lot of them are just convinced that the best care is the care uh, where they can have hands-on. Is that true? And if so, how have you worked with the physicians to, to gain buy-in? Uh, it's been a process. I think one of the um, concerns of particularly our family doctors and pediatricians were going to be that um, this team would indiscriminately hand out antibiotics for everything right. to, to patients. And I, I, we, we actually hear uh, very, very little of those complaints at this point in time uh, because the physicians are hearing from their patients that it's working for them. And in the end, doctors want to have satisfied patients and they want patients who get care where, when, and how they want it. I think that one of the challenges as this gets traction could be that um, if somebody's in a fee-for-service model and these low-intensity patients provide a fair amount of revenue for them, what does this mean in that instance? And I would say that we're making a fairly dramatic transition to panel-based team care, Um, and a lot of our doctors are beginning to ask about being on salaries and being incentivized for outcomes and for experience and quality. And um, in that setting, it's going to make a ton of sense. Um, And I think that will take away a lot of the pushback to the extent that it exists. The comment you just made about changes that you're now considering on the physician compensation side, I think, is a great example of a of a ripple effect that a change like this or or a, a broad based initiative like this can represent. Have there been other changes that either have happened or that you could foresee happening that are going to affect the way other parts of the Intermountain community work? other changes that you think you might have to make to operations or to culture or to any of the other aspects of the system? I think the the way to make these sorts of changes is via pull, not push. So as a, for instance, in the last four months, we've now stood up four of these team-based practices, um, all in the primary care arena, uh, that now cover... um, uh, between six and seven thousand patients, and what we said to the caregivers who are part of that is, don't worry, we'll make you whole financially. So just don't worry about the money part. And um, these were all volunteers, and what we're hearing from them is, this is how I always thought medicine was supposed to be, that I can, without worrying about it, suggest that a patient does something like a telehealth visit because they don't really need to come in and see me. And now my time is spent with patients who are really sick and really complicated. Um, And I can now use 
um, a care navigator or a nurse or a pharmacist to uh, help me with different aspects of the care. And everyone practices at the top of their license and everyone acts as a team. And um, it's been fascinating to begin to watch this ripple across our very, very large organization as word spreads and excitement begins to build. I don't think this is going to happen overnight, and it definitely shouldn't, and one size doesn't fit all, and different specialties are going to require different approaches. But once you're in a business where um, it actually pays to keep people well and in the least restrictive environment possible, it's fascinating to see the innovation begin to pop up about how to do that in a way that's good for everyone, the patient, the provider, the family member, etc. How much of this comes from previous experience that you've had? I know that you worked internationally for the Cleveland Clinic. Did any of this come from, from just being outside of the United States and seeing other delivery models and, and thinking, hey, that makes a lot of sense. We ought to be doing that type of thing. So I'm a pediatric ICU doctor who now spends almost all of his time thinking about public health. So none of this <laughs> comes from my previous clinical experience. <laughs> um, I will say that working overseas has made me very open-minded about different ways of doing things. And a couple of visits to India, where I saw family members taking care of patients and um, helping lower healthcare costs. And I was very moved um, on a trip to um, South Africa to understand the role of community health workers in HIV populations. And um, to be honest, um, Paul Farmer's work with multidrug-resistant TB and Jim Kim, you know, who's now um, CEO of the World Bank, the two of them, the way they, they partnered with communities to take on really sticky medical problems that a lot of people thought were insoluble. Uh, it was very inspirational to me as I think about how do we use the talents of our teammates to really take not sick care of patients, but to keep them well. You know, there is an awful lot of information that this is going to be both requiring and producing, that the act of you know, rethinking some of the fundamentals of the delivery model probably requires a lot of data, but also has the potential to spin off or push out into the world a lot of data that you didn't have before. Have you thought about what that data might be and what the benefit to the organization might be as a result of having it? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, yes, we've thought about it. And in fact, um, Part of our reorganization in the last year has been to partner with a company that is helping us move to the cloud um, and making more supercomputing capability available to us. And we are um, investing heavily in AI um, in a number of areas, clinical and administrative, that um, should allow us to make sense of things. We have stated goals of having the quantitatively healthiest communities in the U.S. at the quantitatively lowest per capita cost. And more importantly, affordable prices for our patients and their, and their families. And in service to that, um, that's why we're making the changes that we're making. And um, it is requiring us to rethink things and has opened our eyes and our minds to the potential 
for partnerships to accelerate that process. I will say that we thought very carefully about bringing in an outside disruptor to take on our primary care um, uh, project, but we actually thought that Intermountain's history of innovation was much better than a disruption. And I've been really pleased at this very large organization's capability to function in startup mode as we start these, these new businesses. But it's required a lot of discipline on the part of our leaders to enable them to move quickly. What have been some of the lessons that you've learned in trying to maintain a startup mindset or trying to in, maybe create a startup mindset in in what you just described as a as a very large organization. That's a huge challenge for just about for a business in any industry, let alone healthcare. So we chose the right leaders. Um, we've got some very hungry, thoughtful, innovative leaders who were really way into this. So no one is working on this on those projects who um, doesn't want to do it, and it has um, deep executive attention. And with the understanding that if, if a barrier is found, um, it's the executive's job to clear the way and do it fast. And we've taken the same sort of you know, innovation approach around uh, the not-for-profit drug company that we're starting with other systems. We had a problem around drugs being in short supply for people, for patients, and being too, too expensive, you know, created by these artificial shortages that a, a few disreputable generic drug companies have, have, have engaged in. And um, so we've tried to figure out a way that we can use the power of the market um, and the goodwill of other systems to find a really innovative solution. And, you know, it's been just great working with folks like Trinity and SSM and others um, as they share our values around affordability and quality of health care and the desire to you know, make change that's truly meaningful and to do it in a not-for-profit fashion. Mark, you and I recently served together on a panel that focused on pop health, and I, I thought a lot of your comments were really insightful. In particular, I'm interested in the work that you're doing around social determinants of health that have become so central. Um, tell me about the initiatives at Intermountain and, and, and what you're really focused on doing. So thanks, and that would probably be the first time I'd ever been accused of being insightful. So this is like a red-letter red day for me. We are a kind group here. We you are, are you guys are super humane. So we've got it. You know, we're recognizing that the majority of somebody's health is actually generated not in clinics and hospitals, but in in, in the environment. And to that end, and given the fact that we are now in. Um, we're getting more and more experience with the prepaid model. We thought we needed to really understand what levers one needs to pull in order to keep a population healthy. So we scanned the state and we put a number of filters in place. And we found two zip codes in northern Utah and two in southern Utah. One is an urban area, lots of urban problems. One is a rural area with lots of poverty. In each area, we have um, a capitated Medicaid population. One has 3,500 patients, the other has, or members, the other has 5,000. And we've committed $2 million per year times three years to each of those two geographies. 
And more importantly, we've gotten buy-in from the local not-for-profits as well as from government to begin to understand how we can work together to both understand the social determinants that are important but make interventions uh, and really, for the first time, understand how to keep people truly well. You know, and that's in the face of we've got the lowest per capita Medicaid expenditure in the country he- here at $700 per year, per member per year, uh, compared to like $3,100 in New York State. So we're doing a pretty good job, and quality metrics are great for those patients, but we think we can do better. And so is it going to be transportation? Is it going to be housing? Is it food insecurity? Is it physical security? Um, we've got a lot to understand, but we're really excited about this because we feel like we're getting to the root of the issue. And when the, you combine it with things like our opioid initiative, which will, looks like, reduce the number of acute pain pills prescribed per year by 40%, or our zero suicide initiative, which is treating suicide like a preventable illness, we think we're coming at the social determinants issue from a number of different angles. All innovative, but all really relevant, I think. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our producer is Ryan Sumner. Our engineer, composer, and Mike of all trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health. I'm Jessica Sweeney-Platt. And I'm Kevin Bam.